From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we visit the front lines of court battles for religious liberty when we talk to attorney Noel Sterrett. He's a partner in the Malk and Baker Law Firm, and he works on religious land use and religious liberty issues in the Chicago area and across the nation. We talk today about the delicate balance of faith and freedom. Stay tuned. Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakas. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it, and I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know, I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Noel Sterrett. He's an attorney in the Chicago area, and he's a partner with the law firm of Malk and Baker. He splits his practice between litigation and transactional work on behalf of churches and small businesses. He's litigated at both the trial and appellate levels in courts across the country, from Idaho to New Jersey, advocating for the civil liberties of churches and ministries in the land use context. And we'll get into what that means in the course of our conversation. But first, Noel Sterrett, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. So when we say that you are an attorney that works in land use, that sounds really boring. Why should a person of faith care about land use? Oh, that's a great question, and it does sound boring. But uh, what we're finding out is as municipalities, the cities and towns in America are using their zoning powers. So that's what we're talking about in land use, zoning, uh, building code issues, basically the ways in which the local municipalities are regulating what's happening in their jurisdiction. So, you know, your city council puts together a zoning ordinance and says, this is what can happen here at this corner, and this is what can't happen. And so more and more, uh, zoning is is turning into one of the greatest threats to the civil liberties that we enjoy in America. And when you say threats to civil liberties, you mean you mean that, that the fear is that somehow a local board or a local government could say that a certain type of entity or business can go here and another type can't, that you see that as, as literally a threat to religious practice? Well, religious practice, uh, groups from entering and coming into a community, uh, take for instance a mosque, uh, which is probably not welcome in, in, in many neighborhoods. Uh, if you're in a, you know, a Muslim group and you want to come into a municipality, and you look at the zoning code and there's no place 
provided for your mosque. And so basically you're left going before a political board asking for their special permission uh, to erect your, your mosque or community center. And what that does is that introduces a level of political discretion where the devil can be in the details and they can mask their uh, their prohibition or their efforts to keep you from doing what you want to do behind things like zoning or building code issues. And uh, we've seen across the country that this has become a growing threat, not just to churches and Christian groups, but to all religious groups. Because uh, when you're disfavored or you haven't been an established group in a community, um, you and you don't you may not have the political power or connections uh, to get established. Uh, your your livelihood, your ability to assemble together, your ability to serve the community according to whatever your religious tenets you have, uh, really are at the at the mercy of these political boards. Now, I want to dig into this because I, I know you personally as well as professionally, and you, I, I would describe you as an evangelical Christian. Is that a fair assessment? That sounds good. I think that word is. Uh... <laughs> been used to describe many people, uh, so I don't know if that word uh, carries much weight these days, but yes, that's accurate. So I, I want to dig in at two points. One is you used the phrase, the devil in the details, and you talked about uh, defending, as your example, a mosque that wants to move into a community, and they'd be an example of a disfavored entity that wanted to enter a, a community. One doesn't often hear in the news about evangelical Christians standing up for the rights of, say, Muslims. Sure. And and so let me ask the first question, how do you square that circle? So obviously as an evangelical Christian, I'm going to assume that you're dedicated to the propagation of the gospel. Yes. And that, that at the end of the day, you'd like to see Christianity, and I'm scare quoting here, but you'd like to see Christianity win in some sort of public sphere, or at least you'd like to see the full flourishing of the Christian faith and the ability to propagate it. Yes. Um, in some ways, rival faiths get in the way of that. So how does it help your ultimate evangelical goal to actually have uh, protections for and the flourishing of faiths that, that fundamentally disagree with the tenets of your faith? Well, I think this is a, a key distinction about the Christian faith that I just cherish tremendously. Uh, the Judeo-Christian values have led to a broad, historically, led to a broad and robust freedom for all people uh, to speak, to live in accordance with the tenets of their faith and, and adhere to conscience. Um, and frankly, the, the gospel that we speak of has not advanced by sword. It's been advanced by persuasion and, the, the, you know, the move of the Holy Spirit. And, and yes, I would like to see uh, uh, the kingdom of God advance, but I, I, it's promised that it will. Nothing will uh, prevail against uh, God's work. And uh, so I can rest assured that we will have that victory. And I can also rest assured that just as as God, uh, and, and if you look at the scriptures, it's very interesting how much dialogue and freedom of speech uh, God gives Satan. I, I mean, I would shut the guy up right away, but Satan is there and he's got a lot of speaking parts. And he's allowed to go out and and spread lies, and he's allowed to approach God for Job's life, and he's there's just so much freedom, you know, and it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, but I think in some respects, the solution to bad speech, as the Supreme Court once held, and I think they still adhere to it, is is more speech and good speech. And I think God is allows the contrast because the contrast is very valuable. And so when I look at religious freedom in America, I don't see a, a winner-take-all system, you know, where we have to say it's either Christian speech or Muslim speech. I see a free place in which we can promote the truth, uh, 
and others can promote the lie. Obviously, they believe it's the truth, but I think that's the benefit of the freedom of speech is we can allow the listener uh, to determine what is true and what is uh, false. And I think that's what's at stake. Uh, when we're, we fail to stand up for the rights of others, uh, we are just one generation or one administration away from putting ourselves in a place where we're the disfavored speech and we're the ones that are not allowed to speak because what you know our speech is viewed as untrue or or wrong or offensive or not proper for this place or time and and that's just really dangerous historically when you look across the country i mean not in our, the history of our, our country but also across the world how dictatorships and other governments um, turn that uh, hate speech laws those types of things uh, to suppress speech uh, and I, that's why i fight for it if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with attorney Noel Sterrett. He's a partner at the Malk and Baker Law Firm in Chicago, Illinois, and his practice is split between litigation and transactional work on behalf of churches and small businesses, and he works a lot on religious land use and the protection of religious liberties. So let me really push the question here. Because you, you mentioned again the devil in the, in the details, and that, that raised a question for me. What are the limits of the types of protections that you will fight for? Obviously, you've said that you would fight for uh, an Islamic community, a mosque that wanted to be in in the Chicago area or to to set up in a community. But what about if we were to talk about a Satanist or someone that worships something that you would, I would assume, find abhorrent? Would you also think that that would be something worth fighting for and protecting? And is that the type of, of legal work that you would be willing to take on if a person even was, was saying something that was not just neutrally a challenge to your faith but actually antithetical to your faith? Yeah, well, I mean, I, frankly, Islam – Islam, the religion itself, I find abhorrent. I, in terms of the the what it requires, the lies that are per, that are uh, in the Quran, um, what it says about women, and a whole host of different things. Uh, so I wouldn't say that the Satanists are, are different. I'm just saying that I I'm here I'm here to help protect religious liberty and a broad, robust freedom for. Uh, those in America who need the freedom to exercise it. Uh, the other part that I think is is the difficult part as an attorney is you want to be, uh, in many respects, on the same page as you as possible with your client. Um, so if we have a a, a Muslim client, uh, they know who we are. Um, they don't. We don't make any qualms at our firm about saying, you know, we are a, a, a Christian law firm. Uh, we are a Christian attorneys. Um, you know, I have my personal beliefs about uh, Islam, Satanism, Mormonism. Oh, there's a lot of different, you know, but but that's that that comes out of the fact that I believe Scripture. And uh, if I believe Scripture, I have to believe these things about other faiths. Um, and but that doesn't mean that I don't want to protect the broad freedom, and so I think that's really where it comes down to. And so with each case and which with each person in need, um, we're here to protect them. Now, if they decide to come to us and we can help, great. Uh, but a lot of groups, you know, uh, I know that a lot of the Muslim groups are now going to Muslim attorneys because they find that it's much easier to fight the battle when you're, I guess, some in some sense, spiritually on the same page. Um, because a lot of what I do as an attorney is I pray for my clients. I, I provide moral and ethical counsel and advice. And so just beyond the legal aspect of it, there's very much a spiritual component. There's very much a moral component. 
and unless you're in some sense jiving <laughs> with your client on those levels, it, it it makes the representation a little different. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, and and let me let me kind of state what I've just heard, and then you tell me where I, where I've I've gotten off the tracks. So you mentioned that you find Islam abhorrent and you classify it in a similar fashion to how you would consider a Satanist or a Mormon. And so I'm, I'm hearing a very strong divide there in terms of your your view of, of the truth of Christianity and all other types of faiths. So this is not a broadly construed ecumenical sort of, of mindset that I'm hearing. The, the point is if I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I have to believe that Muhammad is wrong. And truth divides, and and it's an uncomfortable thing, and and you know that's but that's that's really what you know. I, I love those who are in Islam. I love those, and I'm called to love those uh, who are Satanists. I'm called to love and serve uh, people that are not of the Christian faith. But that does not mean that I need to. Um, muddy up what the truth says. And I think that's the hardest part because truth is like a sword and scripture describes it as such. And one of the things that's very important with the sword or any sharp object is it requires tremendous care in how you wield it. And, um, you know, I've definitely not wielded it rightly before and and caused harm. Uh, but I think one of the things that uh, the church needs to do a better job is yes, continuing to keep the blade of the sword sharp so that it creates the clear divide and you can see and the people around you listening can see what the divide is, but yet realize that the the, the sword cuts and it cuts in such a fashion as it as it hurts. You know, in Hosea it says, uh, Israel says, as God brings the sword of his judgments on Israel, they say, well, he wounds so that he can mend. The purpose of the cutting is, yes, to divide uh, bone and marrow and truth and falsity, and hopefully the people can then follow truth. But yet the purpose is ultimately to reconcile everyone unto Jesus. And I think that's that's my hope, you know, and when I say things as strongly as I find a lot of the Islamic teachings abhorrent, I mean that in, in a very real way because uh, I believe that it leads to death. And so unless I call that warning and unless I call it for what I see it to be scripturally – People will pursue that and I'm not acting in love if I try to claim that, you know, Muhammad's claims or truth claims are on the same level as Jesus, equally true or, um, you know, despite how, I guess, unecumenical that may sound. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with attorney Noel Sterrett. He's a Chicago-based attorney that is a partner in the Mauk and Baker Law Firm, and he he works in religious land use and the protection of religious liberties. We'll talk to him more after the break. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product – 
we would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Noel Sterrett. He's an attorney in the Chicago area and a partner at the Mauk and Baker Law Firm. He, pra- he splits his practice between litigation and transactional work on behalf of churches and small businesses, and he's litigated at both the trial and appellate levels across the country, advocating for the civil liberties of churches and ministries in the context of religious land use. Now, sometimes when you hear about people that are doing legal work on behalf of religious freedoms, you hear about these in terms of kind of advocacy lawyers and they 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 look out for test cases and they bring test cases and they try and ramp them up to the Supreme Court. It, when we think about the kind of legal work that you're doing and that Malcolm Baker is doing, is that the kind of work that you're doing? Is this all pro bono and you're just looking for test cases or or is this a different type of, of legal practice? Well, it is certainly uh, different. Most uh, groups that do the work that we do are public interest law firms that require, you know, a donor base and uh, – but we're, we're actually a for-profit law firm. Uh, we try to run a business and uh, we typically uh, get paid – by winning. In other words, we have to uh, – the laws that protect religious freedom and civil liberties provide that if you prevail in a civil liberty case, uh, the other side has to pay you. It's an incentive for the government to um, kind of self-correct and make sure that they're not infringing on civil liberties because they may have to be paying a large attorney fee bill. And so there's almost even a greater incentive for us to do a better job as a, as a private firm because – Oftentimes, we don't get paid unless we win. And uh, public interest law firms that survive on donors, um, really, they're, they have a slightly different focus. I'm not saying that they're not trying to win, uh, but if they can survive off the donors, the victory is, um, I guess, less necessary. Not that they don't care because I'm sure they do. I know they do. Um, so, yeah, it's a different practice and uh, that's why – we're here, um, and we have uh, obviously would love to have cases up to the Supreme Court, uh, but in some sense we would prefer them not to go to the Supreme Court because we'd prefer just to get the victory at the trial court level and have that be done because it's very expensive to get all the way up there. Now, law firms that work for profit, uh, they kind of live and die on their billable hours. Now, what fascinates me about this is is that you mentioned that you take time out of your day, you take time away from billable hours to pray for clients to to I, I, I'm imagining engage in other sorts of spiritual practices. It, it's clear to me from what I'm hearing that that your faith is not just uh, something that you do uh, outside of the nine to five, but you find ways to integrate it into your daily schedule of law practice. And I'm I'm wondering if you would be willing to let our listeners kind of know how that works on a day-to-day basis. What What is your workday like with that balance? Sure. I think uh, perhaps to use a biblical paraphrase, man does not survive on billable hours alone. Um, and I think that's one thing that I just owe such a great debt to uh, the founding partners, uh, John Malk, Rich Baker, Whit Brisky, um, Andy Norman was involved in the firm for a while. The the foundation that was laid was one that were just a commitment to serve the Lord. 
you know, uh, we have a radio show. It's called Lawyers for Jesus, and and we, you know, that may be a little over the top, but really what that means is we're here to serve the Lord. And uh, when you look at your your life in that respect, um, every day that you you're given, you are employed. There's no one unemployed person um, in the church. Everybody is employed each day. You wake up and you ask the Lord, "What is it you want me to do?" Hanani, I'm here, and that requires us to go to the office. That requires us to answer the phone call. Uh, it's almost a, it, it's really a trusting in the sovereignty of God uh, to look at the day as seeing it as everything that's coming my way is already filtered through His hands, and there's a purpose. I don't always see it, and I need to look for it. And so, when you're given that perspective, and it's taken me many years at kind of the feet of John and Rich and Wit and Andy uh, to see that, it makes your day a lot different. It's a completely different scope. It's 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 in many respects. Uh, Re-incorporating um, the the lost doctrine of vocation, um, understanding that everything you've been given is the Lord's, everything you're being asked to do is for the Lord, and so we can do that in such a way as it doesn't look like a break from our workday, so to speak, if we have our firm Bible study every Friday, which we do. So every Friday we have a firm Bible study. It's been going on for 35 years or more uh, in the downtown Loop area. And uh, we have a Monday attorney meeting where we pray. We often pray for our clients, pray for each other, talk about what God's doing in our practice and in our families. Um, there's a commitment to our families because uh, we understand there's an ordered priority in Scripture. And uh, we just basically submit our, our bills and our <laughs> our firm to the Lord, and we don't do it completely right. And we, you know, there's we have other motives, and we have the flesh at work trying to say, oh, you need to strive more. Uh, where's the income going to come? You know, I'm chicken little when I don't see enough work and the bills aren't getting paid. And uh, so, but but it's it, it's really the, the walk with the Lord. And I think that's how we operate. And so my day looks a little different from a lot of attorneys simply because uh, the faith component is integral. Well, and when you say the faith component is integral, it, it sounds as if you hear this work or you feel this work to be not just a a, a, a nine-to-five job, but it's it's a calling. I, I heard that pretty yes. clearly, that you've been blessed and gifted with certain resources and you need to use those skills and resources. When did you discern this as a calling? Was there a particular moment or was this a gradual process? Well, I think the word calling is very is, – it's kind of popularized now, but I think it's some sense dangerous. Um because I think we can create an idea that there's a calling out there and it, that can create a very problematic, ungodly discontent with what you have going on right now. In other words, there's a lot of attorneys that aren't in a practice like mine where the connection to faith, religious liberty isn't as, as direct you know, they're, they're serving in, 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 in boards and at the Board of Trade or in Corporation Council. And I think when you speak of calling, sometimes, when you, especially when you're looking at a practice like mine, they're kind of like, oh, well, yeah, of course he's got a calling. He's serving the church. Uh, much like what we do with the, you know, the sacred-secular divide that we see. Oh, well, the, the priest has a calling, but everybody else doesn't. And that's clear. And I think we can see in Scripture that some men are called to uh, lead congregations. Uh, but I, I also want to say that when Paul went around to all the churches, he said, I lay down the same rule everywhere I go. Remain as you are. Because the calling for us as, as followers of Jesus is the same. 
where you are, God has work for you. So that's that's there's a general calling, and I think that's true for all of us. And I think we can trust God's sovereignty in that. Um, and I want to distinguish that from what I think people speak of in terms of calling, because I think these days it's kind of like speaking of that one girl out there. You know, like you got to wait for the one. And you may be dating somebody and you're like, I'm not sure she's the one. And you may be married to that and you may maybe she's not the one. And I just think that that's, that's really problematic because I've listened and I've talked to other attorneys and I say they, they're just not happy with where I believe God has them. And the more talk about calling and, you know, uh, as the church even talks about it, you know, well, where are your strengths and what people do you enjoy working with and what makes your heart sing, that can create a godly, ungodly discontentment. And I know men that are out, men and women out there that hear that type of talk and they're like, maybe I should leave my job and go off into a monastery or start a men's discipleship group in Colorado because uh, that sounds like something that would make my heart sing. And I think that's what's dangerous because really when I look at my life, I don't see a time where I said I was – I got this calling and this is it. What I look at is I got hired and I went and sat down in John Mauck's office and I said, how did you get into religious liberty work? And he began to unpack how he had represented a church in Rockford in 1983. And lo and behold, that was the church that I was attending as a little boy. Now, when I'm two, three years old, obviously I had no idea that my future boss slash partner would be representing me and that 30 years later I would be doing the very same work. I mean, I thought I had a plan for my life. I, you know, my wife has a plan for my life. Everybody has a plan for my life. But I think when you sit back and you just trust the fact that God loves you, he has a plan for your life and much of it is undiscernible until hindsight and I think that's the glory of what we're going to have you know, after this life with the Lord is we're going to be able to look back and see how he guided us. And so I think just for the day, I don't know what God's plan is, but I can trust that what's come my way is what he has. In other words, I don't have to look past the guy on the street. I don't have to look past the call that I'm making for this outside of my office calling because it's right there. Everything that comes before me is my calling and that's where I need to be. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Noel Sterrett. He is a partner in the Mauk and Baker Law Firm here in Chicago, Illinois, and he works on litigation and transactional work on behalf of churches and small businesses, and he's worked on civil liberties of churches and ministries in the land use context particularly. Well, let's turn our attention now to talk about some of the cases that you you work on. And so we talked at the beginning of the conversation about how uh, a board or a municipality might make a decision that they think is for the protection of the com- community, but it actually disenfranchises in some way a religious organization from doing its work. And I'm wondering if you could give us one or two concrete examples of what that looks like in real life. Yeah. So let me take up the Rhode Island case that I had earlier this year. Um, a African-American church uh, found a piece of a property, actually an old church building, a uh, white church steeple, the whole nine yards, uh, which had been used as a church for, I think, uh, nearly 100 years. Uh, they found this church for sale and they went and bought it. Uh, they were told upon buying it that they couldn't use it as a church unless they got a special use permit. Uh, not knowing you know, that their way with the zoning code, they 
took the municipality's word for it and applied for it and then uh, they were denied. But what ultimately came up was the fact that the zoning administrator, uh, I believe that's that was his title, uh, they caught him on video making a tremendously, just, just egregiously awful racial uh, attacks uh, on the pastor, you know, just the awful words. And they, they, the, the uh, contractor that the church had hired had gone in and I believe he, he got him on video and audio saying these awful things about the pastor. Um, and then, so there was a clear racial component. Uh, this African-American church was seeking to locate in a uh, small town in Rhode Island that was almost 95% white. And so what you're looking at is you have a, a political board that's elected by the people that are there. You've got a group coming in from, you know, presumably out the outside as they see it, that wants to meet. And when you get these little boards, um, many of them don't know the Constitution. Almost all of them don't know anything about the Federal Religious Land Use Act. Um, and some of them are motivated by awful things like racism or um, a desire to deny religious or not-for-profit groups because it doesn't create tax revenue. Uh, you create a situation in which you've empowered these discretionary boards uh, to wield their decisions in such a way as to create the – to be the gatekeepers. And when you've got a, a, an unfamiliar group like this this small church – uh, they can find themselves on the end of just a terrible thing. And so we filed a federal lawsuit earlier this year, um, and immediately the judge understood how serious and grave this problem was because the video was on the news and um, everybody saw how awful this was. So we had a settlement conference, and the day before I flew out to the settlement conference, I received a letter in the mail from somebody in the community. And it was threatening to me and it was essentially stating uh, we don't take kindly to these people and you know, and I don't want to go into the words used and we don't also take kindly to those who help them. And it was threatening because it said – I think the letter said something to the effect of uh, lightning strikes twice around here. And so it's in that context that uh, I think I realized that um, there's – you never know what's going to – what is motivating people. Uh, sometimes it's racism. Sometimes it's just a, a desire to protect tax revenue. But when we filed that suit, we went out to the settlement conference. I laid that letter that I received um, from this this gentleman out in um, Rhode Island down, and and we talked uh, at length about it. And I think it was helpful for the attorneys for the municipality and for the the judge that did the mediation uh, to see that because we're not talking just about legal issues. We're talking about personal issues, community issues. And uh, praise God, the, the case was settled that morning. Uh, we got the church in that Sunday. So this was, I think, a Thursday settlement conference. Uh, the church was in Sunday. We had a press conference where the, uh, the mayor and the pastor were there, and the pastor extended tremendous forgiveness. And uh, it was a tremendous opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to stand up for religious liberty, and to send a message that this is not acceptable in America. I want to I want to ask a question uh, that I think probably would be on the mind of some of my listeners if they were to Google you and some of the work that you do because the story that you just told clearly there was an oppressor and there was a racial component and, yes. a, and a bias, but they would look at some of your legal work and certainly because you're an evangelical Christian and because of some of the positions that you've taken in defending uh, certain types of speech, uh, mm-hmm. they might see you as the aggressor. So if we think about 
groups that are in favor of a woman's right to choose or sure. in favor of uh, the, the free flourishing of, of homosexual practice and homosexual unions. They would look at some of your legal work and they'd say, well, it, you just told a story about a bigot, but when I, when I Google you, this guy is the bigot. How would you respond to a challenge like that if a listener were to look at your resume and, and have that kind of reaction? Sure, and I think that's a, uh, a question that it depends on what you're, when you, when you're dealing with the truth claims of when life begins, uh, and I'm just, let's take the pro-life situation. I'm looking at this and science confirms that life begins at conception. Uh, my faith teaches that John the Baptist in the womb was the first one to respond to the Messiah. Um, I'm in a position where I have to be a voice for the voiceless. And so while the Supreme Court invented a um, fundamental right to choose, which is not found in the Constitution, um, I have to deal with the, the fact that, yes, I understand that the culture and many disagree with me. Um, but I, I'm in a position where many of my cases that I take in the pro-life context, I very much believe that I am uh, not only representing the rights of women to obtain more information, for instance, when I represent the crisis pregnancy centers that are seeking to provide women with full knowledge of the life that they have within them, the alternatives they have to abortion. I, I very much believe that I'm also representing and providing voice to the voiceless. And so, yes, they may see me as a bigot and that I'm interfering with the right to choose, but I don't think anybody has the right to choose to, to tr decide when another human life can end. Uh, I just think that that's, that's fundamental to who, who I am and you may see me as a bigot, but um, when I look at the science, when science and basically any standard embryology textbook says this is when human life begins, um, I think as a lawyer and as legislator, legislators, we cannot be in a place where we are making artificial um, decisions as to when we're going to protect some lives and not others. I'm hearing clearly that you would also say that if, if a Muslim were to come to you as a client, you would defend them and you would defend them vigorously. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, exactly. I'm called to serve them. And what I view my job is I'm, I'm in the service industry. I have legal t skills and uh, abilities, uh, my knowledge of the Religious Land Use Act, uh, my firm assets where uh, God has given me these and he's called us to serve our fellow man. Um, I don't – I probably haven't had a client that has all the same doctrinal beliefs that I do. So, I mean, we're talking about a spectrum of of clients. Uh, some are not believers. Some are believers. Some are believers that have different <laughs> doctrinal beliefs that I do. Um, and then you have people that aren't that are antithetical uh, or opposed to Christianity, like you said with the Satanists. But my my goal is to serve them in such a way as Jesus would serve them. Uh, continue to uh, my commitment to the truth, but also continue to com my commitment to serve them and protect the freedoms that the Constitution provides. We'll continue this conversation after the break, but for now, let's just say you're listening to Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with Noel Sterrett. Uh, he is a partner at the law firm of Malk and Baker here in Chicago, and he splits his litigation and transactional work. Uh, he, he does litigation and transactional work on behalf of churches and small businesses, and he does a lot of work in the religious land use context. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. Earlier in the program, we talked about advertising, but there are ways to support things not seen even if you don't have anything to sell. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work 
every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with attorney Noel Sterrett. He's a partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago, and he works on litigation and transactional work on behalf of churches and small businesses. In particular, he works on cases having to do with religious civil liberties for churches and ministries and also religious land use. Before the break, we were talking about some of the advocacy work that you do and some of the positions that you take, and you made the point that you understand that there are deep disagreements in our culture about some of these fundamental questions, uh, about same-sex marriage, about the right to life versus a woman's right to choose. And so I want to ask you a philosophical question. When religion is coupled with the power of the law, and you, you used such a great example earlier of the sword and how it has to be used delicately. What is the advantage when that coupling happens in the right way and what are the dangers? Yeah, I think the advantage, just setting this up biblically and I think that's how I, I try to orient my life but uh, obviously it's very easy to wander away from that. Biblically, God is sovereign. Biblically, everything, all authority in heaven and earth is is his to grant and when you talk about the Roman Empire, Paul's talking about the authorities that have been established. We look at it and what we see is that God has created an order in which people flourish. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Jesus, but it's also for human flourishing. That's why I think when you order your laws in accordance with the righteousness and the order that God has established is is good because I think God's righteousness and, and God's way leads us to life and truth. The danger, however, is when you create a system in which we are not angels. Men are not angels. Legislators are not angels. Judges are not angels. What you're doing is you're taking a very holy thing, which is God's righteousness, God's righteous order, and you're giving that very sharp sword to a bunch of people that are not wholly righteous, though they may be you know, on a spectrum. And what you see then is you, you have to say, well, do we equip the state – that may be full of reprobate, angry people that don't believe in God with these powers. And that's where I think the danger is. The other danger, and I think this has been very difficult to deal with, is when the state and state power become the idol in itself. And I think this is my biggest concern for a lot of what's gone on in evangelical Christianity or whatever in, in the church in America is we've, we've treated religious liberty almost as kind of an end in itself. All the while we lose our witness, all the while we diminish what God's righteousness is, uh, we lose our integrity. You know, for me, it's just I, I, I see what we're doing, but one of the things God is very clear about, yes, you need to seek the flourishing of the city. Even in Babylon, he told his people, seek the flourishing of the city. Order yourselves personally 
your corporate practices in accordance with my word, seek to advise the kings. They need advice. But yet, don't idolize the state's power. Be careful when you sit down with the kings and what they have on the table. Because I think what happens is we start to think that righteousness and and the flourishing that we need is only going to come from a place of power. And I think that's very dangerous to the church. Um, I think we need to continue to engage, but engage rightly, because we need more people that are in the judiciary, in the legislature, in in law, uh, serving in in social services, because ultimately those who are following Jesus truly and continuing to maintain uh, a witness to his righteousness will lead to the benefit of the community. You said earlier that you, you have confidence in the truth of the gospel yes. and that if the truth of the gospel is allowed its fair its fair play in conversation that people will be naturally drawn to it and I'm paraphrasing what you said but I, I if I'm if I'm incorrect about that correct me but it sounds like you're committed to you know what philosophically we would call the Jeffersonian marketplace of ideas the notion that truth rises to the top as long as there's more speech and better speech mm-hmm. um, or the answer to bad speech you said earlier was was more speech is that the best possible system? Like is the American system of getting at this truth the best possible truth? Or if we had the power to get rid of democracy and simply establish a government on God's principles, would that be preferable to the kind of democratic marketplace of ideas that we have? <laughs> I think one of the, the 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 brilliance of the founding fathers, they understood one of the biblical doctrines about the depravity of man. Uh, We can argue whether it's total depravity or not total depravity. But one of the things I think that's brilliant about it is that we don't pretend that we are angels. We we are not perfect. We are not Jesus. I'm not going to say that the American system is the best uh, that we can do. It's the best I think historically we've seen. Uh, Obviously, it's great to have the best perfect king. And that's coming, but that's not now. And I think until we see uh, the righteous king return, and he will, but that's not now. And I think for right now, we have to understand that all of those who are not Jesus, which is everybody, uh, have brokenness and have difficulties. So we have to have these innate checks and balances. We have to have these things built into the system. Otherwise, we will be ruled by tyrants. Um, But that tyranny is exactly what we need to avoid because – uh, when you equip the government with such power, you just see tr- such tremendous loss of life, loss of freedom, uh, loss of uh, opportunities for the truth to be proclaimed. Again, none of, nothing's going to prevail against the kingdom of God, but we want a system uh, in which truth can thrive without threat of arrest, death, um, prosecution. And I think that's why it's so valuable for us to, as followers of Jesus to protect a broad range of freedoms for everyone. Now, if I'm hearing correctly in what you just said, that means that in order for this system to flourish in the absence of tyranny, to not have tyranny, mm-hmm. that means that at least for a season, at least for this time, you have to create space and tolerate the voices of, of people that you dislike, that you abhor, with whom you disagree. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I, and I think that's one of the things that uh, I think has been concerning me as of late is um, many are pushing for uh, hate speech laws or arguing that hate speech is not protected speech. Like, the Supreme Court has been clear f- from the beginning that hate speech is very much protected speech. In fact, it might be the only thing that the Constitution was put in place to protect because favored and popular speech needs no protection. 
We don't need any protection to say, uh, you know, the Cubs won the World Series. Go Cubs, go. You know, but we do need protection to say things that the culture or those in power uh, may consider to be offensive, subversive, uh, because we want to be able to say, look, it's not the state's power to decide what is hateful, what is offensive. We don't know what those definitions are. And when you equip the government with the power to decide and make those definitions, uh, really what becomes is you have no spe- free speech at all if uh, offensive or hate speech becomes regulated or restricted or forbidden. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to attorney Noel Sterrett. He's a partner with the Malkin Baker Law Firm in Chicago, and he works on religious civil liberties and land use. When you look at the current legal landscape in particular, your your areas of expertise, what is it right now that's causing you the greatest frustration, either nationally or locally here in Illinois? I think one of the biggest frustrations that I have is the failure of local governments to see the value in religious ministries. Municipalities have become so short-sighted and maybe it's because of budget concerns, maybe because of just the money being the biggest issue that's at the fore of everybody's mind. But when I see ministries out that are that are seeking to serve the community, providing food pantries, uh, providing places of sanctuary for those in the community, providing ministries to marriages and families, those types of things. And I see municipalities coming down with the full weight of the law or, you know, finding ways of keeping them out. Uh, it just is so frustrating to me because they're they're really shooting themselves in the foot and they're seeing just the dollars and cents of it or uh, they're trying to create a picture of what their community is that's just not true. You know, you have mayors pretending that they don't have homeless. Um, historically, churches have been the place, cathedral, where you open the doors and people come in for sanctuary out from the cold, uh, where a single mother with a child could come and sleep on the, the pew because she doesn't have anywhere else to go. That was always what the church was. The church founded the first hospitals, you know. And what I see uh, you know, primarily at the local level, and this is what's been so discouraging, is this understanding that in order for us to have the community that we want, we have to keep the people out um, and we have to criminalize homelessness. We have to, you know, they don't say that. Obviously, they don't say that. But they, they create barriers to um, the people of faith. And I'm not just limiting this to Christians. You know, uh, There's a lot of different groups out there that are serving uh, the less fortunate, the poor, the orphans, the, the the widows, and I think that's my biggest frustration because these groups don't have the political might. They don't have the money to fight really the political walls, the municipal walls that are erected against them. So you mentioned the benefits that can accrue to a community when when faith communities are allowed to flourish. But just could you quickly list for us kind of what you see from your practice those tangible benefits are to municipalities and, and, and communities? Yeah, well, take, for example, a case that we're still litigating against the city of Chicago. It's over 10 years old. Uh, World Outreach Conference Center, uh, Pastor Blossom, a saint of a woman, uh, and her congregation bought an old YMCA building, and they wanted to continue the services that the Y had been offering. Namely, after-school programs for the kids, namely uh, 160 rooms, single-room occupancy units that could be made available to men and women that found themselves on the street. And the city of Chicago used every trick in their book to try to stop them, uh, push forward a zoning amendment to spots on their property manufacturing, 
if they filed a frivolous lawsuit against World Outreach. Now, now we're talking about a group that was trying to take without any government money, was trying to help hundreds of people in Roseland, one of the most dangerous areas of Chicago, trying to take the youth off the street, trying to get, inculcate values, value of life. And they had to then took, take a look at their budget and in order to endure the cost of litigation, they had to basically ration the food they were giving children after. You know, like, well, we can't give them a full sandwich. We have to give them a half sandwich. Because the city of Chicago and their wickedness, and I'm calling it for what it is, because Alderman Beal, what he did and what the city of Chicago's lawyers did was wicked. Now, illegal, yes, but at a higher level, it was wicked. It was immoral. And uh, that's what I'm very – the value that World Outreach was giving to the community, when you take a look at what the government would have cost to provide the same programs, the same housing – it would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then and over the years, over the 10 years that we've had to fight the city of Chicago for this, probably millions of dollars. Uh, Pastor Blossom, when Hurricane Katrina uh, came, she made her space available for victims of Hurricane Katrina. They were looking for spaces. They're flying them all out of New Orleans. And the city of Chicago uh, wouldn't give them the permits that they needed because it was all of this, we're going to beat you. We're going to keep you from doing this. Alderman Beale wanted one of his... Uh, Realtors, uh, you know, one of his developer friends to be able to bid on the property. He lost the bid and uh, he then proceeded to wage war against World Outreach. The city of Chicago and their attorneys uh, followed right behind and were happy to support and they fought this case for 10 years. And now they're trying to deprive, uh, even though we were victorious twice at the Seventh Circuit, now they're trying to deprive uh, Malcolm Baker of any attorney, of the attorney's fees that we've. we should – we're entitled to as, uh, because we prevailed. So this is what I'm saying. We've got municipalities that are devoting millions of dollars in resources to prohibit people that would be saving the municip- you know, municipality tons of money um, and, and it's wickedness. I don't know what else to call it. Well, in, in the face of those sorts of situations, what is it that keeps you uh, buoyant? What is it that keeps you hopeful? Uh, many times I'm not hopeful but that's that's because I'm not I'm, – I struggle with unbelief and – um, when I'm reminded of what, you know, like the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews um, or by my partners who are often my biggest source of encouragement or my wife, we are called to bear witness. We are called to serve and the outcome of our service, the outcome of our work often doesn't result in prevailing. Uh, some overcome, some shut the, shut the mouths of lions, others are torn asunder. Others haven't seen the victory that we can see in certain cases. But yet that's 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 where we trust the Lord. That's where we say, you know, God, I tried to serve you in the best way I could. Uh, I tried to continue to, you know, act rightly, do justice and walk humbly with you and love mercy. Um, we don't do that perfectly. I clearly don't. Um, not all my losses are because, you know, I should have lost. But um, – we try to look for where God is at work and do what he's calling us to do. And I think you can be buoyant in the fact that – buoyed by the fact that you're looking at the cloud of witnesses. You know, like John the Baptist struggled with unbelief. Of all people, he was in prison and he had to ask again. You know, they came to him and they, he said, is he the Messiah? Now, this is the guy that from his his mother's womb declared he's the Messiah. He's the one who baptized Jesus. And yet, because he was in such a place, he was awaiting, he was in jail, about to lose his head. 
he struggled because he looked at his circumstances and said, it doesn't look like this is the salvation, the time of salvation. And what did Jesus respond? Jesus didn't respond, well, I'm going to free you from your prison. He said, tell them that the poor are being ministered to, that the sick are being healed. Oftentimes you have to be buoyed and encouraged by the testimonies of others. Where you may not see God uh, helping you prevail in your situation, you can be encouraged because you can look elsewhere and say, oh my goodness, God is at work there. You did receive healing. The poor are being fed here. These cases are being won here. And I think the a lot of the cases um, that are being lost are because uh, Christians are not showing up. People are not taking the fight. Um, and I think the more we show up and the more we continue to go to work and let the results be in God's hands, the easier it is to maintain the even keel that <laughs> that we should have, the peace, joy, and patience that we should have in the Lord. I struggle with that. I'm the chicken little of the law firm, you know, and I'm <laughs> struggle with anxiety and OCD and all this, all that stuff. But uh, really, a lot of my pastors, a lot of my clients, have taught me the biggest lessons because they they ministered to me while I'm uh, dealing with the legal battles. Well, Noel Starrett, I'm fascinated by the work that you do, and I'm so thankful that you've taken the time today to tell us about that work. Um, just thank you for for coming and having this conversation. Oh, this has uh, been a blessing. <laughs> Thank you. We've been speaking with Noel Sterrett. He's an attorney in the Chicago area. He's a partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker, and he splits his practice between litigation and transactional work on behalf of churches and small businesses. He's litigated at both the trial and appellate levels in courts across the country from Idaho to New Jersey, advocating for the civil liberties of churches and ministries in the land use context. I should also mention that he is the co-host of the radio program Lawyers for Jesus, which is heard weekly on AM 1160 WY. In the greater Chicago area. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer, and Taylor Gould is our seminary intern this year. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.